Welcome to the Becoming Well podcast. Join Dr. Deb Gordon and Mary Hendrickson as they get real in wrestling with the topic of faith and mental health as we seek to understand what Jesus really means when he says, be well. What is the current culture surrounding mental health? Why are there so many people talking about mental health and they aren't mental health professionals? Let's talk about that today on Becoming Well. One of the things that um, we're really excited to be talking about is the idea of the current culture surrounding mental health. And this is such a critical conversation. And so Mary and I wanted to tackle this both from a personal standpoint, but also just kind of talking about the reality of statistics on how culture impacts when and if an individual or a family or a couple seeks help. And we know the reality is in the United States in particular, minorities are much less likely to get mental health treatment or they wait until their symptoms are so severe that you know they experience a lot of brokenness and discord in their families and in their communities. Um, and, and I think when we look at the statistics, the reality is uh, in communities of color, individuals of color, they're, they're 60 per, 66% um, when it comes to even just physical health seek a, a, a provider compared to 80% of, of white adults. And so we really feel like this conversation around what is the current culture surrounding mental health and how and what are the cultural implications of mental health, especially within our faith communities? So um, that's the topic that we're going to tackle today. Mary, what are your thoughts initially on this? This is such a great topic. Um, Deb, I think the what comes to mind is when I had my therapy session last last Wednesday and I usually will journal after my session just to get everything out and my my reaction and all of in processing. And one of the things that came out was in my session was that I felt as if I didn't have space to grieve. Mm-hmm. I didn't have space to address my mental health. That even showing up for my counseling session via telehealth was a sacrifice that I know a lot of people in the African-American community, we we can't afford. So I remember when I started journaling about it, it came to me is that that mental health for the African-American community, it's always been a it's 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 a luxury for the majority uh, population, but it's not a luxury for us. Right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mm-hmm. like I had this image in my head where, you know, you have you, you see this beautiful doll or, or jewels or whatever in a storefront window and you're just dreaming that you can one day get that. And but but oftentimes the majority culture, uh, uh, Caucasian Americans can just walk in and say, here, I want to be able to purchase this or I want to be able to get this. Or they could choose not to and just say, I have enough or I don't like it. But for African-Americans, one, sometimes we wouldn't even be able to see that something like that even exists, right? And if yeah. it does, it doesn't apply to us. It's not a thing that's, that's available to us or it's not a thing that we would even know how to wear or a thing that we would even know how to, uh, you know, describe. So it just always seems as, this is such a good topic because it always seems as if for me and for others in the African-American community, that it's so out of reach. So oftentimes we don't recognize our need for mental health 
until there's some type of somatic sim- symptom, for example. And that yeah, happens yeah, with yeah. a lot of uh, minority cultures where you'll have a stomach ache or you'll have, uh, you know, your your heart is beating kind of irregular, irregular heartbeat. And then you'll go to the doctor, and then oftentimes it's so, it's 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 invisible, right? They say that's the it's it's very it's not as visible, but we know what it feels like to have a stomach ache, and we know that we can't work and just suck it up. So oftentimes we will go to the doctor and then realize that it's something that has a lot to do with our emotional and psychological health. So yeah, it's been something that I've been wrestling through. You know, you and I were talking before we started recording that it's so multi layered and so nuanced that. It's it's sometimes difficult for me, even as a mental health professional, to make concise, even for our listeners. Yeah, it's it's layered is such a great way of putting it. And, you know, obviously, I don't know your experience. um, And and yet having these conversations and trying to involve myself in diverse um, perspectives on mental health, it's 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 just really eye opening to hear um, just some, some, so many of the barriers Mm -hmm. to mental health, um, in, in different communities of color and how cultural values have really shaped perspectives in that way. Right. So you talk about how not understanding or not, not, not viewing, not having the luxury to view something as a mental health issue and until it presents as a physical issue. Mm -hmm. But then I think there's also, right. There's another layer of mistrust and you know right like I'm not going to share what's going on in my life lest I be taken advantage of or painted in a light that is not accurate to my experience and And just that fearful you know I mean there's right there's there's a there's a history there's a systemic history in our country of um, communities of color and especially as you say the African-American community Mm -hmm places of, you know, medical places, medical establishments, they were not safe spaces for um, African-Americans to seek treatment in. Right. And and again, layers, right? That is, that is so on point, Deb, because we always have to look at the historical piece whenever we're talking about this. A lot of times we don't want to do that as a society, but we have to understand the historical piece, especially when we're talking about race and race relations in the U.S. But there is the idea that why would I go to another institution to then be treated how I've been treated in other instances, right? Mm-hmm. And I was reading something. And I, I want, I don't, I want to, I'm using this to frame the bigger conversation because I don't, I haven't done a ton of research on it, but I was reading something about African-Americans and the history of mental health and the history of institutions. And for a long time, you would be seen as super crazy and super, you know, um, crazy or, or uh, they would lock you up far more then try to listen to any emotional piece. So that was just general in the in in, in our society before African Americans. It you know they were quick to lock us up and mm-hmm. not put us out with any or or not help us with any resources. So it was one of these. It was we were shunned even more, right? So the yeah. trust wasn't there from a from a health standpoint, from a societal standpoint. Um, 
re, in terms of resources, we, we, we haven't had that luxury. So why would we trust anyone when we're coming into a new, uh, another institution that is still primarily white? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we're going into another institution and we are all of a sudden super woke and say, OK, and we want to say, OK, mental health is very important. But when we walk in the door and no one looks like us, that's re-traumatizing. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's such a great point. I remember I'll, I'll never forget um, one of our esteemed faculty members who now works with us here uh, in our graduate program, she came to guest lecture in a class uh, that I was teaching. Mm -hmm. And she shared about that experience, how when she was working as an intern um, and as an African-American woman, when she went out into the waiting room and for the first time, her client, who was also African-American, was just floored to see, oh my gosh, here's a professional that looks like me. And as she shared that looking around the classroom and, you know, we're blessed with an incredibly diverse body of students in our program. Mm -hmm. And you could just see this, this sense of connection there to go, yes, to be able to, to not only, um, you know, learn about mental health in a diverse context, but then to go back into my community as somebody who has walked in these shoes and had these experiences will hope to bring transformation but, you know, I want to I want to go back to something you said and the reality and it's just it's heartbreaking, but we're still dealing with this today. I mean, this is a huge issue that right? we see in the news or we see on social media. The reality is there's a very, very tragic difference in the way, especially more severe mental health cases are handled right. within like police department. Right. You see mm-hmm. you see a, a white individual who's struggling with a severe mental illness like schizophrenia and having a reaction, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps, you know, a, a, some type of hallucination or delusional behavior. Mm-hmm. And they're treated very differently mm-hmm. when the cops are called than individuals in the African-American community. Yeah. And so it continues to perpetuate this 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 unfortunate um, stigma and fear, not even stigma, but fear around how to navigate mental health issues in mm-hmm. in that community. Absolutely. And you know we t- I think we might have talked about this in in a previous podcast, but just the idea of the allowance that we give um, individuals that we see in the news, right? So we see someone maybe that, I mean, this is this is multi-layered as well. We may see someone who, you know, is a a shooter, school shooting, and often the majority of school shooters are Caucasian. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I always hear, right, automatically, oh, that's mental illness, and mental illness all of a sudden becomes this this conversation, right? Yeah. When when you know Dylan Roof and all of these different individuals will go and create or, you know, um, commit these acts. Now, side note, uh, mental illness and school shootings and crime and, you know, murder, that's, that's a whole nother layer of stigma. But, but if someone else that's African-American would do something, some type of crime, they're thugs, right? They are, you know, the the mothers and the, the the parenting gets put on trial, right? But they're they're not allowed to have the affordance of maybe it could be mental health, right? Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. usually a, we we you know our society we don't like talking about mental health, but when it comes to the difference between uh, 
African-Americans and whites, for example, the disparity is so evident. We are re-traumatized when we don't even get that affordance that we may have something happening to us and why it may be happening to us, right? It's just that we're thugs and we're this and how come we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps because, you know, this other person that's in the news or that's famous did that, right? So then we become, what what will happen is, no, we don't have a mental illness. It's the fact that I'm going to find somebody who actually can get through life as a Black person. I'm going to use them to weaponize the other African Americans and there's mm-hmm. no consideration of mental health or mental health issues or the, the or the fact that we um historically have never been able to even address anything that had to do with our health because we have we were stripped of so much you know so yeah. I feel like I'm going on a tangent but it it is so multi-layered and and I think today that's why I'm I'm you know maybe feeling as though I can't get some things out because it's so deeply rooted, even for me who, who, you know, I'm pretty self-aware and uh, I've thought about this and and, and discussed this so many times, but it still has this wound when I discuss Mm -hmm. it, you know, because it's still like it going back to what you said. It's, it's like that today. Yeah, it's, it is. And, and, and you're so right. It's like, you know, I get this picture of a bunch of clothes in a dryer and we're trying to kind of hone in on what some of the core elements are, but it's all jumbled together because there are so many factors that impact it. Mm-hmm. And yet the reality is, you know, when we don't address mental illness, there's a huge cost. I mean, we're not talking about just the reality that it can destroy relationships and, um, you know, and cost people a sense of dignity and even, you know, to the point of of the loss of human life, but Mm -hmm. our society loses. I mean, we are spending billions of dollars treating mental illness in the United States. Mm -hmm. And we are also losing out on, I think, the contributions of amazing uh, intellectual and gifted people. And this is taken directly from um, an article on the science of mental illness. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I, um, and now maybe I'm going off on my own little tangent here, but I recently read a book uh, called the, the uh, hidden Valley road. I don't know Mm. if you've heard of this book. It was on Oprah's book club. I love Oprah. Um, And she, so, so this book is about this family in the fifties and sixties. They had 12 kids, 10 boys, two girls, six of the boys were diagnosed with schizophrenia. Wow. In one family. And this is a Caucasian family. Um, But essentially the book is kind of telling their story, but also the stigma of mental illness Mm -hmm. and how, even looking at more severe mental illness like schizophrenia and how it's treated. And there's this big debate between like the medical side of things and psychopharmacology and talk therapy and, and even how we look at this new terminology um, called neurodiversity. So Mm. how the brain processes information. Um, But essentially all of the boys that were diagnosed either ended up institutionalized or heavily medicated. And, um, and so just, I think, you know, drawing it back to the conversation we're talking about, we've got to not only as mental health providers be accessible and available to communities that typically don't have access to mental health services, but we also have to be advocates in shifting the perspective on 
what mental illness means. And which is why for us, we loved the idea of actually naming the podcast Be Well, right? Mm -hmm. Because instead of looking at it as an illness, let's change the narrative and talk about what does it mean to have mental wellness? Yes. And that, you know, that's essentially why we wanted to do the podcast and be and 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 set it up where we're being very transparent, right? Yeah. Because that's one of the ways that we actually remove the stigma. You know, I I did an interview a couple of days ago, and one of the questions that the interviewer asked me was, um, "Do you go to your own therapist?" Right? And we've talked about this, and I said, "Yes," right? Because that we love therapy. Because we love therapy, and during times such as this, you know. And this kind of goes with weaving in some all all of what we've been talking about. I am suffering from from a lot of anxiety. And last week, or even a couple of weeks ago, really depressive symptoms in terms of just trying to process everything that's going on in our culture, from all of the George Floyd stuff and COVID, and 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 you know having to reprocess and re- and modify my living space that we we're affected by that everybody's affected by that right but if there is this stigma and we feel as if we can't talk about it um especially in the christian community so that's a whole other layer yeah. um then it comes like you said at a cost because eventually it's going to come out, right? We talk about that in 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 you know when we when we teach that it doesn't lay dormant and then just suddenly go away, right? It will emerge as something else. Okay? Yeah. Whether it's a somatic symptom or whether you you uh will go inward and then you're depressed, right? And if we don't know or we can't recognize what it is, what do we do, Deb? We blame it on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then if someone else that we're around, they don't know because of the stigma and they can't recognize what it is, their friend is going to sit there and be like Job's friends. (laughs) Oh my gosh. What's wrong with you? What did you do? You need to apologize to God because you you need to get it right with God. (laughs) You're not praying. Oh my gosh. That's so true. Yeah. Well, okay. So I want to talk about it and maybe even how this connects with the church, but something that that I heard you speak on not too long ago at a conference that we both had the opportunity to share at. Um, and I had a student, a former student who wrote a thesis on this that was so powerful, but this um, this idea of the strong Black woman yes, and how that stigma perpetuated continues to impact yes. mental health as well. Yes. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So the... the... <sighs> The, the, I know, this is an easy question, right? Like, just right, it's so simple. Easy, right? <laughs> no big deal. It's like, what I have for breakfast today? Yeah. Um, here's the thing. The idea of the Black archetype, right? The Black woman archetype is that we are strong. We are powerful. Black girl magic. And guess what? All of that, I believe, you know, I might be a little biased, is true. Okay? Yes. All amen. of that is absolutely true. We have, as Black women, grit. That's unbelievable. Mm. We have, we're resourceful, right? We can, we've been known to hold families, but we've done that out of necessity, right? We've done that because we had to. Yeah. Okay. Historically, we were left with 
the children. My therapist and I, and I was where we were unpacking this in terms of, you know, when people talk about black men leaving black homes, we have to think about back when we were enslaved, oftentimes the slave masters would have the black men sleep with a bunch of women so they can mm-hmm. reproduce so that then they can um, contribute to slave labor and then the men are shipped off. Right. That that's how you have that historical issue today. So I say that in answering your question that oftentimes black women are left to hold our own because of historical factors. But we've learned how to teach one another how to be able to have that grit and be able to um, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do what we got to do. Right. And so we've that has been glorified because that's what we learned. And that has that that has been our identity. The problem with that is we are now in a different context. Right. Where we've looked at that so historically and we've done that and that works for us when we need it. But it doesn't work in every context now. We've we've used that as something that we had to do, but it came at a cost. Mm-hmm. So it came at a cost so much that people, you know, they they often, you know, the the st- statistic is that uh, when African American women go and they go into labor, they are actually treated less, or they're actually they die at a higher rate because yeah. um, physicians think that they're kind of like they can handle it, or that we're stronger, or they don't take our our symptoms or our ills seriously, right? So at a at a moment in time, those very traits that we see as you know wonderful, they were and they were needed. But now, but it came it comes at a cost because people now don't believe us, and they just kind of say, "Well, she's a black woman; she could get it." We and, and not maybe consciously or even outwardly, but just this idea of the strong black woman and we can do everything. But that strong black woman now leads in depression, right? Or either I believe that whites compared to blacks is about the same. But that might only be because it's more, it's less reported, right? Mm -hmm. But heart disease, we lead in that, right? So while we have bought into the strong black woman archetype, that has come at a cost. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we can't hold both. It doesn't mean that we're not strong. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. We need to also think about what strength means. So black women, we've always been told you're strong, you're this and that, but we've never been told that vulnerability is strength. Ooh, that's so good. That's Do you so know what good. I mean? Yeah. So we have to re we, we don't want to take away what we've been told in terms of who we are because God has allowed us to be these very strong uh humans. However, we need to redefine now what strength means. And strength is having the courage to say, I need help, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, One of the quotes that I said in the seminar that you were talking about where I discussed this, self-care for Black women is a form of resistance. Mm, that's so good. And and I love what you said about balance, because I think there's this, at least I've heard from, from some of my clients and, and from some of my students and my friends and, 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 and you and other um, amazing therapists who are African-American, who are navigating, especially in this time, as we record this podcast, you know, we're still in the midst of, of, of the protests and the unrest in our country around the murder of George Floyd and the fact that Breonna Taylor's murders are still out there, um, still haven't been arrested, which again, I think feeds into how differently and how, uh, how, um, 
under-supported Black women are in America. Yes. But um, I, I think there's this idea of uh, I'm either strong or I'm not. Like right. there's that that expectation. Like, well, if I if I say I'm tired, or if I say I'm depressed, or if I say I'm overwhelmed, then I'm also sacrificing mm-hmm. the, the 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 I don't want to use the word positive, but the the parts of of this identity as a strong black woman that um, that I value, that I want to hold on to. And so what you talk about balance, I love it. You know, it's this idea of, again, shifting the cultural understanding of what mental health looks like and to say, part of being strong is setting a boundary. That's Part of being strong is taking care of myself. Part of being strong is taking a Sabbath. Part of being strong is saying no. Um, And, and I think, for for especially for me and 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 for others in the majority culture we need to fight for that yes. for our brothers and sisters of color but in particular for our sisters of color because yes. um it's it's absurd mm-hmm. that we would that we would say oh well okay if you're not doing well then you just must not be strong right and and i love that you you brought this up in terms of being an ally and what that looks like for um helping move the narrative for black women one of the things that you do well deb as a friend to me is that when i do set a boundary you're okay with that boundary you yeah. know what i mean even if even if you may not be okay with the boundary you right. respect <laughs> the boundary <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes I'm like, man, but respecting it, and and you know why though? It's because you have generously invited me into those conversations. I have a better understanding of what your needs are as my friend because you've shared those with me, and that and that takes an element of of risk on your part. You know, we've built a friendship. We've been friends now for for a number of years. Yeah. I always measure the amount of time we've been friends by how old your daughter is. Because when I first met her, I think <laughs> she, she was in so sixth grade. Yeah, she was maybe yeah. just barely in middle school. Now she's yeah. an uh, an amazing high school student and Half athlete. Oh, I love. Okay, uh, yeah. and a football player. I mean, we have we we probably need to have a whole podcast for this. But her daughter is like. Um, breaking stigmas and yes. records and she's an Olympian, a junior Olympian. She's amazing. Yes. Anyway. Yes. Thank really you. Thank you. All that. I love, I, I love, love talking about my baby. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> she's amazing. But, but yeah, so we've been friends for a while. So, so we built up this sense of trust, but you're right. I mean, I remember when we talked about, um, that I know you, that there's a group of mental health professionals, mm-hmm. black women, mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are times where I'm like, oh, I would love to, I want, I want to be a part of that. Yeah. But we had a conversation early on about the importance of you having that space to yes. just be. Yes. And it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with where our friendship is at. Absolutely right. nothing. It has everything to do with you yes. needing that sacred space to just be able to process and to be with other women who have a, a kind of a common thread experience. And I do respect that, even if there are times where I know that there you you're having amazing conversations that I want to be a part of. Right. It's not about that. Right. And if I make it about that, then you know, the, then it's perpetuating the problem, right? And that, but that brings in that whole point of. So I'm going to touch. I'm going to say this. You know, I don't want the listeners to like. <clears throat> but you know, we do that because we're therapists, so we say stuff. So That's right. it's kind of that issue of all lives matter versus Black lives matter, and that whole mm-hmm. what about Black lives matter? What about everybody else? It's like we're not saying you guys don't matter. 
That's not what we're saying. So I say that um, in comparison to when we are going to our monthly meetups for black women therapists, it's not saying, oh, white therapists don't matter, <laughs> right? right. It's, it's saying we are using this space because we need to be able to, you know, I always, you know, we, we, when you go out of, when you come in the house for a long day's work, especially as a black woman, sometimes you need to just t- throw everything off because we've been having, we've had a mask on all day. So yeah. we want to be able to walk in like it's home with other people that understand. Like, girl, take off your wig. Take off your weave. Like, <laughs> we know yes. that we have to keep at some level. We have to code switch. We have to keep some type of mask on. Even the even for all of us that are as real as we can be, there's some type of mask. So when we see one another, it's okay. You're at home. You're at home, yeah. sis. It's not saying that when you come in my house, you're not going to be invited, but it's going to be a whole different conversation. You know what I mean? Totally. And it's going to be where even though you and I are really good friends and we go deep, I'm going to have a different conversation with a black woman, right? Just as yeah. much as you would have a very different conversation with a white woman, right? And that's the reality of it. And I think that actually brings very, very comfortable friendship, or I don't want to say comfortable friendships, uh, uh, deep and meaningful friendships, yeah. understanding what that person needs in that their space includes how they are represented in the world, and that includes race, right? Yeah. So to yeah. take the stigma off of mental health, that means we have to be real about other areas. Oh, yeah, that's so good. Well, and and maybe as we kind of wrap up today, I would love to, and I realize like I've, we've been all over the board and we probably have to have like three more podcasts out of conversations we've had here, but it's because as you've said multiple times, this is so layered. We can't tease it apart in one podcast, yeah. but thinking about the role of the church, since we are passionate about this conversation of how faith and mental health intersect, what what's coming to mind for me and just what we're talking about right now is this idea of laying down preconceived expectations mm-hmm. and even maybe more selfish motivation. And, and, you know, I'm going to be honest, like if I am trying to push myself into that conversation, if I'm saying, okay, well, Mary, I'm an ally. So why can't I be invited to your monthly meetings with therapists of color? Mm-hmm. It's because I have a selfish motive, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so if, so I need to confront that in myself. So I think about, okay, churches, for those that are ministry leaders or pastors that might be listening to this podcast, what are some of the ways in which we as ministry leaders and influencers can begin to question within ourselves the preconceived ideas that we have had about mental health and really get to the root of what it means to advocate for mental wellness in the church and specifically among communities that historically have not had access to mental health services, who have been treated differently, um, ostracized, stigmatized, mm-hmm. criminalized for, for mental health um, issues that are a result much more of the brokenness in their community and the systemic racism that runs through our country than, you know, not taking care of themselves. How do we begin to, to really challenge that conversation? Um, I think it's it's critical and it starts with a posture of humility yeah. and self-reflection. Yes. And that's the thing where we're in such a individualistic culture Yeah, that the idea of helping others, especially when it comes to difficult topics such as race, 
you know, I can go all down the isms. Um, we don't want to be uncomfortable. We think it's either my issue or your issue, but not a community issue. Mm-hmm. Right. In other cultures, oftentimes there is, you know, we can say for pro or con, whatever it is, but they're more uh, collectivist. So it's for the better good of the community. Right. And that to me, in that sense, is more like Christ. But what we yeah. do is that we take, you know, oftentimes when I'm in, in conversa- conversation, especially with different individuals with mental health or race or any of that, it's this idea of, oh, my gosh, that means that it has something to do with me. I, I feel guilty to alleviate this guilt. I must have find a way. And this is unconscious oftentimes. Find a way to alleviate this guilt. And that oftentimes can be, you know, deflection or mm-hmm. projection or flat out denial because it's personalized rather than this idea of, wait, this my sister is feeling this way. Regardless if I'm, res- you can respond that way emotionally. We can't, it, it, it's normal that you would feel guilty if we're talking about, well, this person did this to me and you belong to that community. But we actually, we, we, we also have the bigger Christian community, right? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So if I'm hurting, how then did you make it about you? You can yeah. we hurt, you know, I'm not saying that you cannot hurt or you cannot feel the feelings that you're feeling in terms of guilt or the feelings of anger towards all of these different, uh, you know, subjects. But I'm hurting. Right. Yeah, I'm hurting. You're my arm. Right. So if my arm's hurting, I'm hurting. Right. Like that should be our response. Right. As a body. Right. Yeah. And that and like you said, it takes humility, but it also takes this idea that. If it was something else that we were concerned about, would you then say that it didn't matter or would you then mm-hmm. hide from it? So a lot of people are very, uh, um, especially, uh, specifically with white women that I talk to, are very passionate about, you know, e- equality among, you know, the genders, right? Men and women. Yeah. Um, so oftentimes I will say, well, what, if, if I came to you and I said I was taken advantage of sexually. Nine times out of 10, depending on the, especially nowadays with a lot of women, they would say, oh my gosh, we have to report this. We have to do this, you know, and there's this whole laundry list of, I got you, girlfriend, because we're in this together, sister. Mm -hmm. But then that same person, when I talk about race, are you sure? We've come a Mm -hmm. long way, Mm -hmm. right? So we have to be honest about what we are actually facing in ourselves, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, it makes total sense. I mean, what it makes me think of is, if if I were kind of summarizing it, is how is coming to the conversation with um, with a constant commitment to listen to understand, mm-hmm. and also I think a responsibility of um, self education, seeking wisdom, right? Because I think we come in oftentimes, especially in church communities, and especially sometimes some of our our beloved pastors. Mm-hmm come in with a posture of like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to direct you to truth. And if you could see me, I'm putting air quotes up here. (laughs) Um, And I've got this understanding based on my study and my experience, which is all me, me, me. And, and so when you come to me, I'm, I'm sort of listening, but I'm listening for how to respond versus really hearing your story. And I think instead, if we were to come into this conversation, you know, our topic kind of closing out our topic today around the cultural implications and understanding of mental health and to say, okay, I am committed 
to learning, to hearing your story, but also not putting the responsibility on those who are navigating mental health challenges or, or, or those, you know, who are, who are stigmatized by mental health, but also educating myself, reading, studying, seeking out the conversation with others, but also then, but asking the question and committing myself to listening with a posture of understanding. And that, right. I think we could begin to see huge change. Yes. And the thing about it is that that is the disposition of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. It's not this thing of, you know, we have to be colorblind and we're not going to listen to these things because it's so of the world. And so this, that is the disposition of Christ. He's the best listener, right? He can understand. He understands. You know, I I think I said this in a a previous podcast and we can close, but um, my color isn't a mistake. Like he didn't just accidentally, while he was, you know, crafting me, spill hot chocolate and was like, oops. (laughs) My bad. I'm going to have to make some more to make it not look like an accident. (laughs) Which means it can come. It needs to be part of conversation because that is part of my identity. There's a shirt that I just got that that I just ordered that I see color and I love it. Right. So the church, we can't be afraid to talk about how beautiful our different identities are and how and how society, how we contributed to how society has corrupted that. Yeah. Right. And we have to use a posture of listening and understanding mm-hmm. and not being afraid as for as the church. Do you know what I mean? And not be afraid to talk about these topics. That should be a safe space for us. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So essentially, we've solved all the world's problems exactly. today yes. because all we really need to do is have the disposition of Christ. Simple. Right. Just simple. It's good. Right. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Oh, well, thank you so much for having this conversation. I don't know why I'm thinking you. you. You host this podcast with me. You had to be here. <laughs> I appreciate just your personal perspectives. And, you know, I, I think for me uh, as a white woman, I am committed to to this ongoing learning experience. And I'm so grateful for friends like you and, and so many of my other friends that are willing to um, step into those vulnerable places and share those experiences with me because I think it does make me a better clinician um, and, and a better friend and a better sister and a better daughter and, and so much more. And, um, and I love that together we can champion this conversation and really start to, not start, but continue the process of breaking down the stigma of mental health and mental illness. Well, until next time, thanks for listening.